right, so we've said a lot of really good things today. Can I, can I turn the corner and say something that doesn't sound as fun? You don't want me to, but I'm gonna. Uh, well, I found out recently that, uh, that roughly 41% of American adults say that they regularly experience anxiety. 41%. Just to put that in historical context, in 2019, that same survey found that 30% of Americans said that they regularly experienced anxiety. So it's gone up 11%. A couple of things happened. You can probably guess why it went up 11%. According to a Gallup poll that was taken last year, 4 in 10 adults, or 40%, say that they experience worry or stress on a regular basis. About 25% of American adults experience sadness or anger on a regular basis. In 2020, the world was more sad, it was angrier, it was more worried and stressed out than it had been in any time in the last 15 years. And you're sitting there going, well, duh, of course, of course it was, right? I remember in... March, April, this time, 2020, I remember saying to my friends, this will all be over soon, we'll get back to normal, right, everything will just go back to the way that it was, and then by the end of April, we were thinking, maybe it'll be a new kind of normal, maybe it won't go back to the way that it was, and, but, but it'll go to something soon, and now it's 2022, and we're not sure if anything is ever going to move backwards to anything or forwards to anything that feels normal ever again. Uh, I think something has happened in the world. It feels as if things won't ever settle down. Can I tell you the truth, though? I think we're just posting about it more. I, th I think we're just sharing our, our stress and our anxiety more. I think part of the reason why we are as a people so much more stressed and anxious may not actually have to do with the external things, but that we are sharing and not necessarily processing our emotions. Something's actually tricked us into thinking that if you, if you post online your emotions that you've dealt with it, and that sometimes that's the exact opposite of dealing with it, isn't it? Uh, so so the, the truth is, maybe there is a way for us to find something like peace in the middle of a world that, in all honesty, is not going to become more peaceful, at least for a while, at least until I think Jesus does some things that we can read about in the book of Revelation. I, I think that the world will probably continue to be more chaotic, but God has given us a way to be less chaotic. And that's what we're actually talking about. Uh, for some of us, just hearing the idea that the numbers of anxiety are high make us feel anxious. Some of us, when we think about the things that are going on in the world, make us feel more angry. And, and so if that's you today, I sympathize with you. I know what that feels like. Uh, but I think that there is hope. And so actually last Sunday we started a series wrestling with this idea of, of finding peace in the middle of this chaotic world. Uh, it, we called this series How to Hold Your Peace. And it's inspired by the way that Jesus held his own peace when he was on the road to the cross. In fact, it was inspired by a moment in the Gospel of Matthew. If you have a Bible with you, you can open it to Matthew chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. It'll be up on the screen. But there's this moment in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 26. Jesus has been arrested. 
he's been put on trial illegally. There were all kinds of elements of things that were going on that were, that were, that were kind of not supposed to happen that way. After the moment that I'll share with you just in, in just a moment in Matthew chapter 26, we see that Jesus is, he, he's mocked, he's beaten, he's eventually, uh, he eventually dies on a cross. At one point, Jesus is surrounded by a group of religious leaders during this illegal trial. He's, he, these people are, are, are fishing, like desperately fishing for some kind of legal accusation that will hold weight so that they can get rid of this guy, Jesus, who's been a thorn in their side for the last few years. And what I love about this story is the way that Matthew contrasts the frantic behavior of this group of religious leaders up against Jesus in the middle of that crowd as what, what some people might call a non anxious presence. Uh, listen to this starting in verse 59. It says, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death. <laughs> but they could not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward, stated, this man said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days, which is something he actually did say, uh, and, and there's a lot of reason why that still was a little bit fishy, but it was enough for them. In verse 62, it says the high priest stood up and he said, Do, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? And here's the key to this entire series. In verse 63, it says, but Jesus kept silent. And in some translation, it says, but Jesus held his peace. Just so you can understand how they reacted, again, more crazy, dramatic, and frantic behavior. It says, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus says, you have said it. But I tell you, in the future you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he is blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See, now you have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah. Who was it who hit you? I just want to let that sink in for a second. Think about this man, Jesus never sinned, mocked, beaten, they spit in his face to make fun of him. They're going to drag him away in a minute to another trial. He's eventually going to be flogged to near to his own death, stopping just before the point that would kill a man. And they're going to put a cross on his shoulder and he's going to have to carry his own cross to his own death. This man, this man holds his peace. He keeps silent when he needs to keep silent. See, the thing is, and we said this last Sunday, Jesus didn't just keep his peace because he is God. He is God, and that had something to do with it. But, but Jesus was also 100% a human being, which means that he was just as susceptible to losing his peace as we are. I propose to you that Jesus was able to hold his peace on the way to his death because he was a man of discipline before the road to his cross. 
And he, and he became a man of discipline so that we could learn from his example. And this is an important example for us because Jesus says, in, in fact, in Luke not, chapter 9, he says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So it was discipline that enabled Jesus to be able to hold his peace on the road to his death. And it will be discipline that will enable us to hold our peace as we learn to walk daily towards our own death. And living in this world in 2022 can sometimes feel like its own kind of death. And then Jesus has called us to somehow be alive in the middle of that. He, he even said, I came to give you life and life more abundantly or life overflowing. And so we're supposed to find a way to live in the tension and the dichotomy of being led to our own death, following after Jesus, taking up our own cross and still holding our peace while also being fully alive and having abundant life and seeing signs and wonders and all kinds of hope that we hold fast onto and holding our peace in the middle of the life and the death that we are to live every single day. And I propose to you that you cannot do that by the strength of your will alone. And so we practice disciplines. So today, and in this series, we're actually looking on our road to Easter. We're looking at four ways that Jesus modeled spiritual disciplines for us so that we can be like Jesus. So last Sunday, we talked about solitude and silence. And today, we're going to talk about a similar and maybe even a sister discipline that uh, Dallas Willard, actually, he, he says that the discipline of prayer is is not a standalone discipline. It's one of the spiritual disciplines that can only really be practiced when it's married to other spiritual disciplines. But today, we're going to talk about something that I think is foundational and, and, and of absolute vitality to your spiritual life. Uh, today, we're going to learn from Jesus about the practice of prayer. I, I would like to share with you three ways that Jesus modeled prayer for us. And We'll root this in some scripture that we actually saw last week. You might remember that we saw in Luke's gospel last week that Jesus often, in fact, he made a habit of it withdrawing, getting away from the crowds for this practice of solitude and silence. In Luke chapter 5, verse 16, it says, The news about Jesus spread even more in large crowds would come together to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Yet he often withdrew to deserted places to pray. In Luke 22, uh, we looked at this passage last week to remind ourselves that Jesus practiced solitude and silence, and today we'll talk about prayer. He practiced these disciplines throughout his entire ministry. This wasn't just a one-off thing. It says in Luke 22, Jesus, he went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray. Uh, by the end of our message, we're going to come back around to that passage today because it's going to be a very, it's going to teach us a very important lesson. But I want you to understand, it's clear from these texts that even though last week we talked about solitude and silence, it, that wasn't the only thing Jesus was doing as he withdrew from the crowds. He, he withdrew because he, ha he had a habit of prayer. And his prayer discipline was a big reason why he was able to hold his peace. 
Now, if you were to, de to define the idea of prayer, prayer can simply be defined, like if you just go ask any of our kids in life kids today, what is prayer? And most of them will probably say something like prayer is talking to God. Prayer is, prayer is talking to God. Some people who may have a little bit of a graduated understanding of prayer might say something like prayer is a dialogue with God, right? In, in fact, in his book, Armchair Mystic, Mark Thibodeau writes four stages of prayer that we can grow in. And, and this might sound a little bit familiar to you as you think about what our kids might say uh, about what prayer is. He says that the foundational understanding of prayer is talking at God. This is the lovely childlike prayer that is filled with lists and thank yous. It's straightforward questions that we ask and memorized graces, right? Uh, how many of you as parents, or you can remember as when you were a kid, had a prayer that you recited at dinner time and at bedtime every single day, right? Uh, in our family, I, I could tell you exactly how our kids would start a prayer at dinner time and exactly how they would start a prayer at uh, at, at bedtime or how they would start a prayer if we were asking them to pray over somebody. In fact, in our family, it seems like all of the young people start their prayers with the exact same phrase, Dear Lord Jesus. It just is the way that they've learned to pray. Now, the criticism of the talking at God prayer is that sometimes people call these parrot prayers. They're, they're not really prayers that come from your heart. They're prayers that somebody else kind of taught you, and you're really just parroting that back. And, and then also it can just be a grocery list. And sometimes we, can, we have to admit that we come to God, and we're not really praying in dialogue. We're just saying, God, here are the 30 things I need you to do for me today. Here's my grocery list. <clears throat> Now, uh, Mark Thibodeau would, would say that we can graduate to talking to God, where we find our words and we learn to monologue and intercede from our hearts about our desires and our needs. In other words, these become our words, not just the words of our parents that were taught to us that we're copying. Then we can move on to listening to God would be the third level of prayer. This is the understanding that prayer is a dialogue that requires listening to God's thoughts and not just my own. So as you graduate to this level of prayer, you would understand that the most important voice in a prayer conversation isn't your voice. It's always God's. And so you begin to speak less. You begin to listen more. And then fourthly would be being with God, which is the, the basis or the foundation of contemplative prayer, which rests in God's presence without concern for any of the prayer activity that is going on. This actually is what we talked about last week in the idea of silence. I had a lot of conversations after last Sunday of people coming to me and saying, Pastor Tim, I really like this idea of silence, but what happens if I hear God say something to me? Or what happens if I am suddenly compelled to say something to God? Or what happens if I get like a prophetic image? We're Pentecostal church. And so we have people say, what happens if God gives me a prophetic word? What do I do with that? Such a great conversation. And I would just argue there that the, the first two types of prayer, talking at God, talking to God, or most people's prayer life, the fourth kind of prayer would be this silence that we talked about last week, that we would actually try to move into a place where the goal of my prayer life is just to be in God's presence, just to be known by God and to, to know God. But certainly, I think you could already begin to see that if your entire prayer life was just completely silent, then we're not really doing prayer in its full understanding, right? There has to be something else. And 
And I would say that there are times where you pray and you are speaking to God. But then this third one is where we want to start to kind of dig in uh, today. This third listening to God is, is the kind of prayer that we want to pay attention to. So let's, let's move into that first point. Again, I, I told you I'm going to try to give you three ways that Jesus modeled prayer. And we talked about silence. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here in this first point because we talked so much about silence and solitude last, last Sunday. But I just want to give you an idea so that you can walk out of here knowing at least a little bit that these are similar but also different enough that you should know the difference between prayers of silence and or times of silence in prayer and also listening prayer. So again, these are similar but different. So where silence is practicing uh, growing in being still, just being in the presence of God, being known by God and knowing God. Listening prayer, which is similar, however, it approaches God with a request for him to speak. Maybe with an anticipation So silence comes in just to be with God. Listening comes in with a hope that God will say something to me today. And then listening prayer helps us to position ourselves to hear from him. I was thinking about listening prayer this week, and I was reminded about two men that used to attend this church when I was a boy. I started coming to this church at eight years old. My parents had just recently divorced, and I was in a lot of pain, and I was lacking a father figure in my life. And there was a there was, there was an older gentleman, and I say older, I was eight, everyone was old at that point. Um, so there was this older gentleman, his name was Dirk Pilgrim, and if you can just picture kind of like a grizzled construction worker kind of old fella, he was a, he was a, he was a white guy, so he had, and he had, he had white hair, and he had like f- the tip of some of his fingers had been sawed off at some point on a construction site, right? He was Dirk Pilgrim, right? And then there was this other guy named J.J. Johnson, and he was an old African-American man who had a, a long history. He was older than Dirk, and he was the kind of guy who, actually, he ran our food bank that we had at the time at the church. He was our head usher, and just to give you a picture of J.J., he was kind of starting to hunch over as, as you know, people do kind of in their older years, and he was kind of starting to hunch over, but he had a big smile on his face, and every time he was the head usher, he wore white gloves, and if you were an usher that day, you also wore white gloves, and if you didn't, JJ would talk to you about that. And sweetheart, he will smile at you while he talks to you about it, but you would be talked to. Right? This was this was JJ and this was Dirk. And so Dirk and JJ, by whatever circumstance, just as my family, my older brother and my mom and I came into the church. Pastor Jan Spencer was the senior pastor at the time. They took us into the family. And men like Dirk and JJ saw my brother and I, and they saw that we were in need of some father figures. And so just I, I have no idea how this happened. I was a kid at the time, but but, but by whatever circumstance, I ended up finding myself going on fishing trips with these two men. They both, maybe independently, maybe together, decided that they were going to teach me and my brother how to fish. And so I went on fishing trips with Dirk, and I went on fishing trips with JJ, and my brother would go with us, and we would go out there. And I was thinking about these two men because they were distinct and, 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 and similar in some ways that they taught me how to fish. So, so Dirk was he, was, he was quiet in his fishing. He was, he was to the point. 
this is how you do the thing. I, I, I'm going to be honest, I didn't really enjoy fishing, so I don't remember much of, of how. I couldn't tell you how to do the thing, but he told me how to do the thing, right, with the hook and the thing and the thing. So casting, thank you. He told me how to do all of that and, and like, the kind of bait and how to put the bait on the hook and, and the benefits of, you know, fish versus not fish or worms or whatever, I don't know. Um, he helped me, he helped me set it up, Dirk, and then, and then he would show me where to sit or stand, and he would do it like this, sit here. Okay, 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 this is how you cast, and he would show me how to cast, and then I would cast, and go, good, or not good, do it like this. It was, it was like that. And then mostly, while we would fish, we would just sit in silence. In fact, I have one distinct memory of going to a very small uh, lake with Dirk, or at least we were at a place where there was kind of a bank in the, in the lake, and he said, I'm going to go over there, and you're going to stand here. And, and we could see each other from opposite ends. And he, I think it just because he knew I was terrible and he didn't want me to scare his fish away. And now that I'm a grown-up, I think that's what was happening. But I just remember it, it wasn't about talking. It was about just being together fishing, right? And then JJ, on the other hand, would tell me about the first time he ever fished while he was putting the thing on the thing and doing the thing. And, and he would tell me about how he, how he learned how to fish and who taught him and who came alongside. And then he'd go, now I can remember a time when I, and then he would tell me this wildly long story. And then sometimes we wouldn't even get to fishing because he would just tell me his story. And then, and then the point of being with J.J. was about hearing J.J. talk. And the thing about J.J., especially being, knowing J.J. as a kid, J.J. was one of those guys that you knew you were never going to get to tell your story, but you were perfectly fine with that because he's never told a, a story that wasn't interesting, even though you've heard it 30 times. Right? So that's J.J., and that is Dirk. And to me, that is silence, and that is listening prayer. There are times when I just want to come to the lake with God and be in his presence and just be present. And if I catch a fish, cool. And if not, that's okay too. And if I'm doing something wrong, it's not a conversation. It's not even a lecture. If anything, it might just be a nudge. And then there's times where I need to come into God's presence in listening prayer and I just need to turn on my ears and turn off my mouth and let God say anything that he would have to say to me. And I might be there for minutes or I might be there for hours, but my story is far less important than God's. And I just come to listen. Now, there are other moments where God will come and say, now you get to talk. Now, you say, now I want to hear what's on your heart. Now you come with your questions. But, but listening prayer is God talks. You listen. So in silence with Dirk, I, I learned to feel the, the loving presence of, of a father who just wants to be with me. And, and, and in the stories with JJ, I, I learned how to hear wisdom, how to hear the narrative within a tale that was winding and twisting and didn't always make sense to me in my little kid brain. It's kind of how God still talks to me. I was thinking about listening prayer this week, and I was reminded about a, a man named Samuel who grew up to be a prophet, but when he was a boy, he was brought into the temple to, to just serve the Lord. And in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we see 
this kid is trying to sleep at night, and God, he keeps hearing this voice saying, Samuel, Samuel, and he thinks it's, it's Eli. He thinks it's the guy who's training him to serve the Lord, and he's like, bro, I'm not calling you. You're hearing things. Go back to bed. And then the third time that it happens, he looks at Samuel and says, the next time you hear your name called, just say, I'm here, God. I'm listening. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 10, that's exactly what happens. It said, the Lord came, stood there, and called as before Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel responded, speak, for your servant is listening. In listening prayer, that might be the most that you say. And you only say it to posture yourself because God knows whether or not you're listening. You really only say it to, to articulate to you, okay, I'm turning on the listening mode now. Listening prayer is even seen when Jesus visited Mary and Martha. You might remember in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus goes into their house, Mary and Martha were sisters, and uh, Mary was the one who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha, it says, was distracted by many tasks. What does she do? She complains to Jesus. Tell her to get up and do the work. And in verse 41, it says, The Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. Notice that he didn't say that all of those things are bad. He was talking about the condition of her heart. He says, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it will not be taken from her. There is something in listening prayer that understands the value of just sitting at the feet of Jesus. So you, you might even go so far as to say that while Martha was working for Jesus, Mary stopped to listen to him. And so therefore you can understand from what we've seen so far that listening prayer is practiced when we can listen to God's voice. We do that by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks to us. We also see in Scripture that the Holy Spirit will remind us of the things that Jesus said, which means that listening prayer also will happen as you just listen to Scripture. As you're, as you're just listening to the, the Word of God read to you. There was a man sitting right over here last Sunday who, after church, I went to him and I said, man, you were taking ferocious notes during my message. He goes, please don't be offended by any of this. I didn't write down a single thing that you said. And I was like, that sounds awesome. What were you writing? And he said, well, you don't know this. We haven't met yet, but I'm a preacher. And I, uh, I just, a lot of times when I'm listening to sermons, God begins to speak to me about things I need to know about or think about or share with other people. And so I just began to write down ideas that God wants me to share with other people as I was listening to you preach the sermon. He said it was a good sermon, but I wasn't taking notes on that. I was taking notes on what God was saying. And I said, well, God wins. So you take, go ahead and just take notes on what God says. My sermon's on YouTube if you ever wanted to hear it. That's, that's a form of listening prayer. He was listening to something that God was saying in the moment, and then he was listening to what God was actually saying directly to him in that moment, right? I have this app on my phone called Pray As You Go, and it's got, just, it's got a daily guided scripture reading, and, and there's, a, there's prayer prompts, and there's reflection questions that you can just listen to. And, and I, in fact, I got up this morning, and, and I just listened to today's scripture reading and the prayer prompts. It has nothing to do with this sermon, nothing to do with anything we're talking about in the church, but it was everything to me in that moment to just sit and listen to God. I, I was making a cup of coffee. And I was listening to what God wanted to say to me. I didn't say anything. I didn't say a word. Just listened. Listening prayer can happen as you listen to music. 
or guided prayer, or even as you just sit quietly listening to nature, or maybe you love to be outdoors, you just go outside and something about the chirping of a bird or wind rustling through the trees, which you can hear a lot of out here, um, maybe that helps you to listen to what God would say to you. So listening prayer, I, I think, I believe, is at the core of our ability to hear from God in any way. I mean, you've read scripture and not listened to it. You've heard a sermon and not listened to it. You know that there's a difference between hearing and listening. You listen to God in listening prayer. You don't just hear what he says. You might walk away from listening prayer with marching orders for ministry or purpose for your life or maybe some point of correction or a call to repentance or maybe God will give you wisdom for your life or for the ministry that you serve in. As we practice listening prayer, we become like Jesus, who said in John chapter 5, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or Jesus again, who five chapters later says, I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything that I have said. I know that his command is eternal life, so the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. There's something about listening prayer that carries even the same attitude of what Jesus said to his disciples before the death and the, the, the resurrection and, or the, the ascension before Pentecost, before, before the church started. Jesus looks at his disciples. It was actually after death and resurrection. But anyway, he, in the middle of all of that, he goes, I want you to go to Jerusalem, and I want you not to leave there until I've sent you the Holy Spirit. There's something about listening prayer that carries that same attitude that says, God's going to send me to say something at some point, but I'm going to wait to get what he wants me to get from him until, uh, until I hear it. Make sense? Until I receive something from him. So to, to practice listening prayer, it's, it's, this isn't going to be wildly profound to you, but you really do much of the same thing that you would do to practice solitude and silence that we talked about last week. You find a distraction-free place. You set your focus on God, uh, being, being in his presence. It gets a little bit different from listening or uh, from sol silence and solitude to, to practice listening prayer because uh, where in silence and solitude you might turn your phone on airplane mode, get everything quiet, in listening prayer, you, you might even turn some music on. You might listen to scripture. You, you might listen even to a sermon. And then you would prepare yourself, maybe even with a pen or your phone, to record anything that God says. There's something about coming with pen and paper that says I'm ready to learn. I've, I've got my phone and my note app open, ready to, to write down anything that God says to me. And then you record what needs to be recorded, and when your time is done, you thank God. You could practice listening prayer for five minutes every single day, 15 minutes every single day, or for as long as you need to in a moment of desperation. Practicing the discipline of listening prayer, though, for a regular amount of time on a regular basis strengthens the muscle, and I promise you will strengthen your ability to hear God. Jesus made this a rule of his entire life to practice listening to God. He didn't say or do anything unless he heard the Father giving him instruction. So when Jesus' life became chaotic, his heart was calm. And, and that is the fruit of listening prayer 
what it could look like for us as well to be able to also hold our peace. So you might practice listening prayer if you want to follow Jesus' model for how to pray, to how to practice the disciplines of prayer. You might also practice the second kind of prayer, which would be something we would call liturgical prayer. Now, I know that in charismatic Pentecostal movements and environments like a four-square church, you probably aren't familiar with hearing, it's probably, you're probably not used to hearing the word liturgical come out of the, the mouth of a Pentecostal pastor. Um, this is something that, that exists kind of in the places where we call the high church. Maybe if you grew up Catholic or if you still attend a Catholic church from time to time uh, or if you have some Presbyterian friends, they might use the word liturgy. Liturgy is, is just a word, if you're not familiar with it, that means a customary repertoire, fancy terms, of ideas, phrases, or observances. In other words, it's a thing that you do for spiritual purposes. In fact, James K.A. Smith, the philosopher, he says that liturgy is not just things we do, but they're things that do something to us. So they shape us, they form and mold us into the image of Jesus. In her book, The Handbook of Spiritual Disciplines, Adele Calhoun writes, a written or memorized prayer that serves as a framework for individual or corporate worship and devotion. That's kind of the beginning of the way she defines liturgical prayer. She also writes this, though. She says, liturgy is grounded in repetition, not improvisation. Pause there for a second. Improvisation would be the moments where we, where maybe Pastor Danny's leading us in worship. He says, just pray something to God. Sing a new song to Jesus right now, right? Just pray whatever's on your heart. And there are moments for that. We love moments like that. There are moments when God inspires you to pray something for somebody else. Maybe he gives you a prophetic word and you just go, I don't even know how to say these words yet because it's the first time I'm thinking this because God just downloaded this idea into my brain. So I'm just going to communicate it to you so I can be faithful. Blah. Right? That's good, but it's not liturgical prayer. Okay. So liturgy is grounded in repetition, not improvisation. Liturgical patterns call us to let go of our compulsion to lead or plunge ahead in any way that we want. Their rhythms draw us into established patterns of attending to God. They give us space to use our voice, finding our words, name our sin, hear God's word, and gaze upon our creator. The pushback that often comes in environments like ours against things like liturgical prayer is that it feels too religious. And I, I get that. It can very well be too religious. Or that it's not emotional or it's not passionate enough. And I fully understand that. It can be, it can be devoid of all emotion or passion. I would just propose to you that uh, you probably say lots of things that somebody else said before you that you say with passion. Have you quoted a movie? Ever sung lyrics to a song that you love? Gotcha. Liturgical prayer, though, is actually really, it's designed to help us learn to resist having our prayers be led by our emotions. There are moments when prayers are led by our emotions. In fact, we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But liturgical prayer is, is the, it's resistant to letting our emotions lead the way. Because sometimes that can get us in trouble. Or sometimes we don't, our emotions would have us say something that God wouldn't actually want us to pray. Liturgical prayers can be short. There's a famous one just simply known as the Jesus Prayer, inspired by a couple of places in Luke 18, where you see phrases like, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
that might be an example of a liturgical prayer. You just stand up together in church and everyone say this, the Jesus prayer, son of David, have mercy on me. I like in Luke 18, uh, verse 13, that version says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a very self-aware version of the Jesus prayer. So they can be short or they can be longer, written for specific occasions or purposes, maybe written by yourself or written by people who died hundreds of years ago. I mentioned James K.A. Smith a, a little while ago, the philosopher who talks a little bit about liturgical prayer, and, and he actually says that liturgical prayer should have a sense of poetry to them. He wrote a book that I have here called You Are What You Love, and if you feel like reading a book that is very good but will take you four times to understand it, then I highly recommend this one. But in this book, James K.A. Smith writes about written or liturgical prayer, and he actually contrasts two kinds of prayer of confession as an example of liturgical prayer. He, and his argument is liturgical prayer should have a kind of a, a poetry and a rhythm to it. It should feel almost like, like it's alive, like after you've heard it, you kind of think, have I heard that prayer before? And so he actually contrasts kind of a contemporary prayer of confession against an ancient prayer of confession. Let me see if you can spot the difference. So here's, here's one example. Today we confess that we have not done enough to protect our planet. We confess that we have failed to insist that our government set standards based on precaution. We confess that we as consumers have allowed companies to release dangerous tox toxins that destroy fragile ecosystems and harm human beings. Are you bored by this prayer yet? As Gary said yes. Uh, especially those among us who are, who are most vulnerable. The prayer goes on. God of justice, help us understand the need and send a clear signal to our political leaders about making the crucial choice between the present path of de de destructiveness, big words in the middle of a prayer, or the morally responsible path of compassion and respect for life, acknowledging our dependence upon you and our interconnectedness with all creation. That's a really important prayer. Can you, can you quote any of that back to me? Smith compares it with this ancient prayer. He says, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Do you notice the difference? One of the beautiful things about this written prayer is that you never, ever ever would recite this in church, uh, in, a, in a church where this would liturgically be practiced, where everyone stands and recites this. The older saints in the church have memorized this prayer decades ago, and the children are still reading it with their parents, fumbling through it while it's up on the screen. And you would never pray that with your church family together without the priest or the pastor or whoever's leading that prayer moment, standing up and responding with these exact words, Almighty God, have mercy on you. Forgive you all your sins. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. Amen. There's something about, imagine being in a moment 
where you, you, you recite this prayer and hear that response prayed back over you as a blessing every Sunday. Every single Sunday. Um, an example of a really well-done modern liturgical prayer is from, uh, there's a couple of churches that I know that do prayers like this, and, and there might even be one or two of you in the room who are familiar with this prayer. We don't practice it here, but I can think of at least one church in the Antelope Valley that does. At the end of worship, there's maybe a transition time, and then the pastor, whoever preaches, gets up to preach, and before they uh, do this sermon, they hold their Bible up, Greg, tell me if I get the words right. Uh, it goes something like, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can have what it says I can have. So I open my heart today. I can do what it says I can do. See, Greg, is he knows the liturgical prayer. I can do what it says I can do. So I open my heart today to receive a word from God that will change my life forever. And then everyone recites this prayer. If you've been at the church, they put it on the screen if you're new so you can pray along with it. And we all say amen, and we open our scripture, and then we get into the word. That's a, an example of a memorable liturgical prayer. So Smith's point stands that there's something about a liturgical prayer that isn't just about saying words that somebody wrote a long time ago, but that's saying words that get into your brain so that on Thursday when you sin, you go, I confess that I am a sinner. I, I, I've not loved my neighbor. And you remember the prayer, right? Or as you're coming to read scripture on Wednesday morning and it's already been tough half a week, you go, okay, this is my Bible. I, I, I am what it says that I, right? I, I remember the, the prayer. So it's not just empty religious practice. There's something powerful about this idea if you keep your heart connected to God while doing it. Probably the most well-known liturgical prayer would be the one that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Matthew chapter 6, his disciples said, teach us to pray. And his response was, our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food that we need. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And let us not... and." Don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. I purposely put that in a translation that wasn't the version that you grew up praying. Just see if I could trip you up a little bit. How does that end when you pray it? Right. You know the song. We wrote a song about this not too long ago, right, the church. And so we, we all kind of re-remembered uh, how to sing this. Depending on the translation, maybe you've said, uh, forgive us our sins, or uh, forgive us our debts, or forgive us our trespasses. I always, that was always my favorite one. As we forgive those who trespassed against us. I don't know why. I just always had, like, you know, the bad guys in the Christmas story that Ralphie shoots in the backyard. Like, that was always the, the mental image as I prayed that. And then I was like, wait, am I the trespasser or am I the trespasser? Passy, I don't, I don't know. I just don't want to get shot by the Red Rider. It's a powerful prayer. <laughs> 
Now, I, we've done entire teaching series on this. We've called it the heart of prayer because the point of that series was to unpack each of those lines. Jesus was not just telling us, hey, make sure that every single time you pray, pray these exact words, that there was actually a heart of prayer. There's actually a rhythm of prayer. There's a, there's a roadmap, if you will, for how to pray and the things that Jesus would invite you to pray for as you learn how to pray. So he said, pray like this. And yet, I, I think we want to not overcorrect and say, well, so don't just, don't just recite the Lord's Prayer. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Right? But what if, what if at some point we just said, you know what would be a really good idea is to stand up together and recite the Lord's Prayer? It would be a great idea. In fact, if you were a good preacher, you might plan to end a sermon like that. So if you want to practice liturgical prayer, find a written prayer, a good one. Good can be subjective. Maybe maybe it's good because it makes you feel connected to God, but it should also be uh, very clearly good because it's theologically sound, right? So a liturgical prayer that says, God, give me all the money, amen, I don't know. I had a liturgical prayer about a Mini Cooper showing up in my, gro- my driveway for many years. I have stopped praying that liturgical prayer. Um, now it's just a, I bequeath the Lord or something. I don't know. Some big words. So you find a good liturgical prayer. You read it, and I would say out loud. Read it out loud as a prayer. And if you don't know where to find one, go to the book of Psalms and just read the book of Psalms. I mean, you could literally just go all the way through it, right? And just, just read them out loud. In fact, this is an ancient practice. Um, there are monks still who have a practice of praying the Psalms every single day, and they'll get through the entire book of Psalms in a month. And then they'll just start over. And they, after doing that for a while, they just have the entire book of Psalms memorized. Could you imagine how it would feel to just have the prayers of Psalms at your disposal at any moment in your life because you've been praying them every single day? It's the power of liturgical prayer. So as we practice liturgical prayers, we can be encouraged by 1 John 5.14 that says that uh, we can have this confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if you're praying liturgical prayers that are specifically rooted in Scripture, I can't think of a better way to guarantee that you're praying God's will. Right? So, we've talked about listening prayer. We've talked about liturgical prayer. And now, finally, I want to to talk to you about a third mode of prayer that we don't talk about a lot. And, And again, there are a lot of kinds of prayer. I want to talk to you just about this last one, prayers of lament. Now, lament is a, is a word that is connected closely to uh, verbal grief. Uh, that's kind of the idea of lament, to verbalize your grief. Uh, again, Adele Calhoun writes a pro, uh, that prayers of lament are approaching God with the realities of sorrow, frustration, and angst that consume and distract. So, in, in other words, prayers of lament is verbalizing to God your heavy feelings, 
your, maybe your distractions. I, I was just saying the other day that I was, I was listening to that Praise You Go app, and there was a place in there where it says, how are you feeling right now in connection to God as you listen to this prayer? And I, I was just driving somewhere while I was listening to it, and my, my audible response to that was, God, right now I just feel far away from you. Just, just that morning wasn't like some chronic condition. It just was, God, this, right now in this moment I feel far from you. The good news of that is that I then ended up going and having a meeting with a friend that felt like an hour-and-a-half-long ministry moment where we were just blessing one another, and I walked away feeling very close to God after that. So God answered my prayer, but that was a prayer of lament. I had a heavy feeling. So the prayer of lament, especially in charismatic circles and maybe just in general in American churches, we love to, to, to hide our emotions that are negative and really platform our emotions that are, that are positive, right? I, I, you've heard me, if you've been around Life Church for a while, you've heard me make the critique that I have a problem with the phrase blessed and highly favored because we often used it, use it in churches uh, as a lie. And how are you doing today? Blessed and highly favored when what you actually mean is I'm dying on the inside, but I don't want you to know because then we'll have to have a conversation about my heavy feelings. And I really just would like to say yes and amen to a sermon and, and get blessed and be highly favored. Leave me alone. So prayer of lament is the practice of honesty with God. In prayer, bringing, your, bringing what feels like death to the God who gives you life. Jesus was very comfortable with prayers of lament, by the way. He's very comfortable with emotions. Just consider that he was prophesied about in Isaiah 53. He, Isaiah said he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In John eleven thirty five, 35, when one of his best friends in his earthly life dies and the crowd around the tomb seems to lack faith, we get the shortest verse in all of the Bible, Jesus wept. In Luke chapter 19, we see that it says as Jesus was approaching the city of Jerusalem, he wept for it. And he said, if you only knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For these days will come when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among, among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Jesus said those words through tears over the holy city of Jerusalem. The author of Hebrews actually sums it up really powerfully that Jesus is comfortable with emotions. In Hebrews chapter 5, he writes, During his earthly life, Jesus offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Interestingly, it says that God actually answered that prayer. But in order for that prayer to be answered, he had to die. Verse 8 actually adds just an important lesson for us. Although he was the son, son in my Bible would have a capital S. Although he was the son of God, he learned obedience from what he suffered. We should learn the same lesson. But part of obedience is to come with honesty about what we're feeling on the road to our own cross. Jesus seemed to be very comfortable with lament. In John chapter 10, starting in verse 27, after he's told his disciples that he, he's going to die soon, Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. What would I say, Father, save me from this hour? 
But that's why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then I love this response of God. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Just put, put, putting that in its context, the crowd around him didn't hear the words of the Father. They just heard thunder. And then Jesus schooled them on why that was. But Jesus models prayer of lament because he was a fully emotionally engaged and healthy human being. And he knew that to be a fully engaged and healthy human being meant that sometimes you're sad. Because sometimes you see the holy city that God chose to be the home of his chosen people who have repeatedly rejected him and has become the earthly representation of mankind's reject of God. Sometimes you look on that city and see its utter destruction pending and you just become very emotional. This is, this is the God that we worship, that every single time that we are far from him, his heart is grieved. And then we come to God and think that we are supposed to have all of our stuff together? God goes, stop being fake. Tell me how you're really feeling. I can't fix what you pretend not to be dealing with. So lament. Be honest. Tell the truth in prayer. Follow Jesus' example. Where Christians are often concerned with presenting a positive appearance, I want to look like I've got it all together. I think we do this because we're afraid of uh, this phrase, we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit by not fully receiving all of the blessings that God has poured out on our lives. But I, I think the practice of lament is the work of grieving with the Holy Spirit because we understand that he is the comforter. His practice, Jesus' practice of lament played a significant role in Jesus holding his peace on the way to his cross. So now, as we draw near to the end of our time together, let's look again at this passage in Luke chapter 22. After the Passover meal, Jesus has been betrayed. He's about to be denied three times. He's about to go in through this illegal trial. Eventually, he'll hang on a cross and die. It says, after he went out and made his way, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. He's now practicing his normal habit to go to a place of prayer. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. So far, we've read that before. Verse 41 says, then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray. And here is what Jesus prayed. Father... If you are willing, take this cup away from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In, in what might be the most perfectly stated prayer of lament, an honest expression and ultimate submission. I love God's response. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed even more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. In other words, Jesus was in the prayer of lament. He was grieving so much that his sweat was like drops of blood. Some actually believe that there's actually a medical condition that you can have that can be onset by extreme moments of stress that you would actually bleed out of your pores. So the prayer of lament, it might be one of the most human experiences that we get to observe Jesus in. 
maybe, maybe even, maybe even more than the cross. That he would be more human in the garden. Because on the cross, you see him cry out, God, why have you forsaken me? But you don't see him asking not to have to do it anymore. And Jesus becomes so 100% human in the garden. And he laments. You, you almost begin to get a glimpse that maybe this man has lost his peace. Maybe he's scared. Wouldn't you be? He had all of the same emotions. And so in all of those same emotions, he comes to God honest. Dad, I really don't want to do this. But we're going to do this, aren't we? Help. So he sends an angel, he comforts him, and he continues to carry, and he continues to give over. And at some point, after verse 44, it says, then Jesus got up, and he went and returned to his disciples. And they were asleep. <laughs> he goes, guys, you can't even pray for an hour? And they said, no. Actually, they said, what? And then everything kicked off, and Jesus gets arrested. Peter chops a dude's ear off. Jesus gets mocked. He gets beaten. He gets spit on. He gets flogged nearly to death. He carries his own cross, and he dies for us. And all the while, the closest that we ever came to seeing him lose his peace is in a moment of the prayer of lament, in a moment couched in the safety of being honest with God followed immediately by submission to God's plan. I believe that Jesus was able to hold his peace after the garden because lament enabled him to release his anguish to God in the garden. And I believe that one of the reasons that we do not know how to hold our peace when things kick off in our own lives is because we don't know how to give our emotions to God. We actually have convinced ourselves that it is religiously pious and righteous for us to hold our emotions and to carry the burden as if the negative emotions have become our cross. This is just my lot in life. It is God's will for me to suffer in sadness. And God would say, no, I came to give you life and life more abundantly. You will suffer. You, you will experience pain. But I have overcome the world. You get to figure out how to live in the tension of sadness and joy. Of, of pain and peace that passes understanding. And I propose to you, you can't figure out how to carry that balance on sheer will alone. That it is moments like the honesty of Jesus in the garden when you say, Jesus, I don't want to do this anymore then maybe suddenly you find yourself having a second conversion experience. The first one was all about emotions, and the second one is the moment that you say, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to anyway. And in my experience, those ones are much more meaningful. Those are the ones that stick. You can practice lament by following the advice of a book named Lament. In Lamentations 2.19, it says, Arise, 
Cry out in the night from the first watch of the night. Pour out your heart like water before the Lord's presence. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who are fainting from hunger at the head of every street. Get up. Don't sleep on your lament. Pour out your heart. Tell the truth. Be passionate about it. God can handle it. Lift up your hands if you need to. Name the problem. So, Lamentations 2.19. Maybe, maybe you practice lament by following, uh, by prayerfully reading one of the 60 Psalms of lament. Do you know 40% of the book of Psalms is dedicated to personal and corporate lament? Maybe God is trying to send us a message. Lament. 40% of the book. And you can practice lament by honestly telling God how you feel and asking him for help. God, I, I, feel, I feel this way. Name the way. God, I, I would ask you to help me have peace. Or help me to serve you. Help me to love this person. Help me to forgive. Now, you can plan those times, or you can get in your car, go for a drive. Say some things that you'd get fired for saying, or maybe some things that I'd get fired for saying. God can handle all of that. You can plan it. You probably can't always plan it. But I'll tell you what, if you set a rhythm of lament in your life, maybe it looks like practicing the discipline of, of uh, what... what uh, St. Ignatius would call consolation and desolation. Saying out loud the things that feel like a, they've drawn me close to God and then also saying out loud the f- things that feel like they're desolation, that they were death in my life today. Maybe if you practice something like that, a, a daily prayer of lament, maybe when you really need a good prayer of lament, you know how to get there quick because God doesn't seem so far away in your negative emotions. So we can learn to hold our peace like Jesus. We absolutely can if we practice to pray like Jesus prayed. We want to be people who are comfortable with listening and comfortable with lamenting. We want to practice spontaneous and emotional prayer as well as ancient, written, structured prayers. So to that end, I I would like to end this gathering today praying together words that were given to us as a gift when his disciples asked him to pray. Why don't we pray the words Jesus taught us to pray. Now, I recognize, like I said before, there are all kinds of different versions and models of this exact prayer. It's going to be up on the screen for you uh, behind me in the version that I'd like us to recite together. And to honor this moment, if you're physically able to, would you stand to your feet with me? And I would like to end this service in the ancient liturgical prayer, maybe even, you might say, the first New Testament liturgical prayer. I'm not so much worried about your pacing. I'm not so much worried about your volume. God probably isn't either. If this doesn't sound like a choir, it's fine. How's your heart when you pray this? I want to invite you to mean these words. What would it mean for you to pray to our Father in heaven? When we're done praying this liturgical prayer, I'd like to pray a blessing over you that also is rooted in Scripture in Numbers chapter 6, a priestly blessing 
that Aaron was told to pray over the people of God. So I'll pray that blessing over you, and then Pastor Sharon's going to come up and wrap up our service. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look on you with favor and give you peace. Amen.